it's just been a phenomenal week. Uh, you know, I had a good feeling about this place when I got here on Monday, and um, you know, felt like my game was in good shape. But you know, I never imagined to to play like this and to you know to win by so many. Yes, I'm not sure anybody expected him to win by so many, but what a performance it was from Rory McIlroy talking there about major win number two. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another combined episode of Talk and Golf and State of the Game. I'm Rod Murray, and today we're going to start with happenings at Kiowa Island and Rory's fabulous win, but that will be just the appetizer. The main meal, a review of all four of this year's men's majors and we might try and rank season 2012's grand slam events by we i mean the entire state of the game team starting with blogger and commentator jeff shackleford from the u.s jeff welcome thank you rod yeah good to have you aboard uh, sorry from the home of the game in scotland our resident curmudgeon newspaper and magazine columnist john huggin how are you huggy I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, fantastic to hear. And representing the Southern Hemisphere player, architect and analyst, Mike Clayton. Clayton, good to have you on board as well. Thank you, Rod. Yeah, and uh, good to... Uh, we've, got the, we've got the Globe and the Time Zones covered. I wanted to start today, fellas, with, as I said, the, uh, the KOI on the PGA, the 94th PGA, an amazing win by Rory McIlroy. We in the golf press were very quick to anoint Rory the new king last year when he ran away with the US Open. We were just as quick to suggest that he was making all sorts of mistakes and that his relationship with Caroline Wozniacki was uh, distracting him from his game and he had that slump, missing four out of five cuts. Now we're back on the Rory is king badwagon. Jeff Shackelford, is there any merit in any or all of those assessments of Rory McIlroy? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I think there was merit in all of them um i i think he's back i think he was sidetracked i think that his win at congressional was on a, a non-us open like golf course and maybe was uh, a tad overrated uh i think a few people could say the same thing about this win and that the golf course was very soft but i i don't feel that way about this win i'd be curious what the other one other guys think i i felt like uh he faced just about everything no the golf course could have it was not as firm as it could have been, but he faced wind, he faced changing winds, he fa- faced uh, drama, all sorts of strange things going on with uh, tee times. And and then he was able to drive the ball in a way that you weren't able to do at the last two majors uh, with length and uh, incredible length and accuracy. And, and then he showed a, a side of his game that we had seen flashes of, great short game, but he, he just did some things that were incredible at Kiowa. So... Uh, it was a it was a stunning win, and and I, I did a blog post today. I was trying to convey that I felt it was the most satisfying win, and I and I mean that in the sense that it wasn't the most exciting, but you felt like watching the tournament. The best player won without question, and I think the first three majors of the year, you could make a case that um, maybe if circumstances were just slightly different, uh, that that might not the the actual winner might not have been the act the eventual winner and so that's why i really enjoyed seeing this this win yeah interesting interesting thoughts we'll talk about the other three majors shortly obviously huggy what was your take from over there obviously on your side of the pond uh, rory is about as popular as a man can get i imagine he's being re-anointed the king in your part of the world what was your take do you agree with Shaq there we were very quick last year after the us Open, weren't we and then we were very quick to tear him down when he didn't do what tiger did after winning his first major kind of thing that we expected of him well, I, I, last year I, I took the view that um, it would, you know, that I wasn't ready to anoint certainly Rory as the best golfer in the world, even after he'd won the U.S. Open by as many shots as he did, simply because you need to do something like that more than once to to prove the point. 
plus, I mean, equally on the on the girlfriend front, I mean, what really was the difference between you know a young, rich, reasonably good-looking twenty-three-year-old lad with a who has a you know a nice pretty blonde girlfriend who happened to be a tennis player? It seemed to me that everybody was getting bent out of shape simply because she was a tennis player, not because he had a girlfriend. I mean, it, it would have been shocking that he, if he didn't have a girlfriend. Mm. I mean. To me, but but this time the the difference this time I think in, on the golf front is that I'm ready to say that that Rory McIlroy is the best golfer in the world right now, and it's not Tiger Woods anymore. I, even after Tiger's meltdown and all the rest of it, I was still of the opinion that his best was the best. But I'm not. I've I'm convinced now. If if I need convincing that uh, that Rory is definitely the best golfer on the planet right now. Yeah, well, certainly, and he's uh, he's got the number one ranking back at uh, in the world rankings as well. Clates, uh, I'm sure you watched with uh, with awe a bit like the rest of us. As Shackleford, there is an amazing driving display from McIlroy. Who is your overall take of the tournament? Then some of your thoughts just on Rory as a player. You wrote an interesting column about him as well yesterday on the back page lead. Why well, is a brilliant player, flashy? I think, as Huggy said, he's clearly the, for the first time since uh, Nick Faldo and Greg Norman were the best players in the world, there's a, there's, a, there's someone other than Tiger Woods who's the best player in the world. And, I mean, for me, Tiger, I mean, there were years when Nicholas wasn't the best player in the world for six months or a year, but he was the best player in the world from 1962 to 1980, really. And Tiger was the best player in the world from 1997 until... Last week, I think, but he's not anymore. I think McElroy's clearly, you know, is no comparison between McElroy's feats and those of the other number ones, Westwood and Donald, who are tremendous players. Mm-hmm. But you know, they've conspicuously failed to do what he's done twice now, brilliantly both times. Yeah, indeed. Do you sense, uh, and I suppose there's, there's a lot of comparisons being made between McElroy and Woods. What's your sense on that, uh, Clates? Do you think? McElroy's got the game. Is he the package that could do what Woods did? I mean, I think McDowell described Woods as a once-in-a-generation player. McElroy is a one-in-a-decade player. Would you go along with that assessment? He doesn't seem to me to have the Woods thing, whatever that is, where you could just dominate. He's amazing when he's on, but I don't know that he's got the week-in, week-out dominance of Woods. What would be your take there? Well, although his results have been, apart from that miserable run he had in the middle of the year, he... Mm. He's a top five finisher most weeks he plays. I don't know what the stats are, but I mean, Tiger was the most incredible performer in terms of top fives and tens and wins. But McElroy is as good as anyone in terms, in the sense that he competes most weeks in the top few players. But Tiger's the he's a staggering player. I think historically he'll be he's one of the best four players ever with Jones and Hogan and Nicholas. He's the mm. better four guys and. It's, it'll take a staggering talent to get any anywhere close to those four players historically. McElroy's got some chance, but when you're talking Jones, Hogan, Nicholas and Woods, they're, they're a long way, not a long way ahead of the rest, but they're, in the history of the game, they've clearly separated themselves. And McElroy's got some chance, but he's going to have to be unbelievably good for the next 15 years to match them. Yeah, indeed. Shaq, is McElroy likely to be the Watson to Woods' Nicholas? Is that maybe more the... <laughs> he's, a diff- he's a different personality. He doesn't seem to have that real driven, overbearing, only one rooster in the hen house thing that Tiger had going for so long. Well, and he's so uh, respectful of everybody, but especially of Tiger. So it's 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 an odd dynamic. Um, we're going to get to see them play together uh, at the Barclays, which I think will be interesting. But, but it is a... Um, it is a very 
peculiar relationship in that uh, whereas you watch Tiger with other people and there's clearly sort of a divide or a dislike or a, a fear or whatever. Rory's not afraid of him, but he's very respectful, but he also, um, uh, I don't know, there's just a, there's an odd chemistry there which i don't know maybe it'll it'll be a good thing when they're head to head or maybe it's it's best when for him when when he's not facing tiger i don't i don't really know but um uh watson nicholas is an interesting comparison i hadn't really thought of it that way mm. huggy what was your take Woods sort of gave him a bit of a backhanded comment didn't he when somebody asked him about rory's performance he said oh gee you know when he's on he's pretty good isn't he or something words to that effect the suggestion being that maybe he's not always that good what would be your take on the relationship between the two Huggy, you with us? Sorry, was that for me? Yes, Sorry, I beg mate. your pardon. Yeah, that was for you. Can we expect it, it, a I'm rock? having trouble hearing some of the, the, the words are going in and out, I'm afraid. Oh, but, my uh, apologies. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the one question I would have over Rory still is that he's won those two majors, albeit, you know, in fantastic style, eight shots each, in very similar conditions. I mean, as Jeff pointed out at the beginning, the course was, was very soft last week, as it was at Congressional. In fact, that was the biggest disappointment for me last week was that the Kiowa Island course, which is in a place in the world that is crying out for, um, you know, balls landing short of greens and running on like they do over here on a proper links. And it just didn't have the grasses, apparently, to, to allow the players to do that. And it was it was a lot less interesting to watch because of that. It would have been fantastic, to, especially on the, the second day when it, the wind got up to see these guys playing proper golf shots, you know, being asked to hit the shots and being able to hit them. That would have been far more interesting than watching them blasting it up in the air and shooting 77. Mm. Yeah, well, it was a, was a horrendous day. Just on the golf course, Clades, what was your take on the course? Obviously, only seeing it on TV. I think, judging from the tweets coming out of the uh, the media centre at Kiowa, thankfully, none of us was there. It sounded like a nightmare logistically. What was your take on the course, though, Clates? I mean, it's hard to predict. It's hard to see, I suppose, just from television. What did you think of it? It's a very different venue, isn't it? Yeah. The, the only friend of mine was catting for Marcus Fraser there, and we emailed a little back and forth, and I said, it looks like a Lingus golf, but you can't play it like a Lingus golf course, which was Huggy's point, really. And he agreed. He said, you're right. He said, you can't bounce the ball up. So... You know, it's it's silly to call it a links when it's you know, if it's if a course is gonna be a links, it needs to be a links, it needs to play like one. And if it just that it looks like one, doesn't mean it is one. Mm. Yeah, that's so <laughs> you know, perpetuates the, the the myth of what a links is. There, there, there are thousands of courses that get called links and there are about two hundred of them that really are. And and, that, and it clearly wasn't. It was you know, it was the same golf they play every week on a venue that looked different. Yeah, it was uh, 7,700 odd yards, Clates. What does that do to your mind as a former touring oh, professional? Such a, such a <laughs> tremendous commentary on the administrator. But let's not go there and bitch about administrators and golf balls. But Not yet, you know, that's anyway. The, that's what you have to do to make, you know, that's the one-dimensional answer to the equipment yeah, is just do. make it incredibly long. And so no one else can play it but with players of, of extreme length. Yeah, it will top 8,000 yards, they say, at Chambers Bay, so we'll be looking forward to that. Jens, a more general question. The course at Kiwi, as I said, it was an unusual one, and it's in an unusual spot. The, the logistical problems aside, and there were plenty of them, and I think, Huggy, you've probably got some, some sympathy for the spectators at this tournament in particular. We'll get your thoughts on that. But is the US PGA, Jeff Shackelford, on the right track trying to differentiate itself 
from the other three majors by going to venues that are different. You'll never see a US Open at Kiwa Island. We may see another PGA there based on the comments made by the PGA after the event. Are they on the right track with that idea, trying to differentiate themselves? Is that, in fact, what they're doing, or is there just a money deal behind this? No, that, that's not what they're doing. This was a one-off, a former uh, PGA president uh, who's still there working at the resort and still uh, touting it. He, he drove them there, and uh, they had been there for the Ryder Cup. But they, if you look at their upcoming venues, it's just the same old places. Uh, Oak Hill, Valhalla, Bell Reeve. Uh, I, I just, it's just, it's a... It, whistling straights it's it's um it's just not a very inspiring group of courses especially mm. at the time of year that they visit them um they're probably much better courses at other times of year but but they they go to these places that are just miserably hot and you'll never be able to get them firm and fast and they do differentiate themselves in that their setup is generally not as narrow um so again they didn't narrow down Kiowa, which was wonderful um but they also had threatened to do some interesting things with with uh, par fours and shorten some holes, and uh, the setup was dreadful that way. They 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 chickened out on the sh- the holes they were going to shorten, which you know, in Kerry Haig's defense, maybe he he threw that out there, and then when he watched the players play, he realized it wouldn't be good. And so I, I don't want to criticize him too harshly because he may have made that decision based on watching the play and realizing it wouldn't have made for a better test. Um, so that that that's fine but you know the par threes are the killer to to not vary those par threes at all and and they're they were pretty diabolical par threes no pun intended and and did not have maybe tucked a few pins and played tees way up or just done something to mix those up was was really disappointing so i i don't think the pga though is is doing anything to differentiate themselves other than to to really stand out as as probably the most uh, by far the most mediocre of the of the four majors, even though they really gave us the best winner in terms of feeling like the the, the champion uh, has displayed skill and and uh, probably won fairly easily uh, and separated himself. I, I just don't think they uh, are doing a very good job. Clay, what do you think? You had some interesting thoughts on Twitter on what the U.S. PGA Championship might do to separate itself from the other four. You was tying it in with the Olympics, all sorts of stuff. Take it around the world. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it was Joe Ogilvie's idea, which was interesting. Uh, he thought that once every four years, which might be reasonable, you could it, it could be the Olympic event. I don't know how that works and how the politics works, but I thought that was a reasonable idea. You know, clearly, if you were setting golf up again, you wouldn't have three of the four majors in America. And to me, it would be much more interesting if not every year, but every third or fourth year it went to one of the great courses around the world. If, if they played it at St Andrews and they played it at Royal Melbourne and Durban Country Club perhaps, or I don't know, but it seems like it's always going to be the fourth major. It's, you know, it could become an incredibly significant event if it travelled around the world every now and then. But you know, you're talking to Huggies friends who are, what do you, sweater salesman Huggies, is that what you call them? <laughs> Huggy. I'm sorry? <laughs> I think we're talking about the sweater salesman you so love. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I, um, you know, I think if you were going to do something really interesting with it, you would take it around the world occasionally and showcase it off to people who only ever watch it on TV and give the world some ownership of it. it that would obviously have its problems, Clates, and I'm sure that you wouldn't want your email address to be out there for all the players to complain about having to travel around the world to play the thing every third or fourth year. But Huggy. What can the PGA do? It does have the feeling of the mini US Open, doesn't it? It's always been considered the fourth major. Can they, should they do something to try and change that, differentiate themselves? 
Well, I've always, I've argued, I've been banging on about this for I don't know how long. I mean, Mike's dead right now. If you were starting over tomorrow, you certainly wouldn't have three majors, three of the four majors in one country. Uh, the tennis people seem to have it just about right. They've got, they go all over the place. But I mean, I've, I've written this more than once. I think if you were, if I was starting over tomorrow, <clears throat> my four majors would be the the two Opens, US Open and our Open. That unfortunately, I hate to say this because I can't stand Tim Fincham, but uh, <laughs> the Players' Championship being the biggest tournament on the biggest tour would have to be a major. And the fourth major, I would take round the world, as, as Mike would, but I would make it the World Match Play Championship. Mm. I think one of the majors should be played at match play, no matter what the television companies think. And that, because that is the, the vast majority of golf played in the world every day of the year is, is match play. Mm. And one of the majors should reflect that. Yeah, indeed. Interesting idea, Shaq. There's often been talk that Asia deserves a major of its own, the way golf is going in this part of the world. And it would be a sensible thing on the part of golf, quote unquote, whatever that means, to sort of give the region something uh, to make it feel like it's a part of the golf world. Could the PGA do? I mean, Joe Ogilvie may well be the next US or a US tour commissioner at some point. Lots of people think he would do, do a very good job of it. Uh, is there scope for the PGA or to maybe do that? Or can we introduce a fifth major? How do you deal with that global problem? Three majors in the US. Well, I think it's a very simple thing to fix. And, and uh, the PGA of America CEO, Joe Strank, is going out and they'll be hiring somebody new. And, and I'm sure they won't hire anybody uh, who's, who's a visionary or risk taker uh, or who would propose something so bold. But uh, I'm having a hard time imagining a scenario where the PGA leaves the country once every four or five years and has, has a, becomes a tournament other than a massively important championship uh, and one that becomes uh, respected immediately around the world and is it solidifies its place as a major championship and probably makes decent money too doing it if they go to Asia once every 10 years and and they go to all, as we saw with Australia the, uh, the the support of a sporting event there is is uh, incredible so they uh, it would it would require though somebody who uh, has some some vision and an ability to sell a group of people on an idea who really the idea of leaving this uh, Going west of the Mississippi River scares them um, for their championship. So it's a tough, tough group mm -hmm. and uh, a not a forward-thinking organization and, and not an organization that, that really even thinks much about its members. Uh, you talk to PGA members, and they don't even like their own organization. Whereas you, you look at our golf course superintendents, uh, that's a fantastic organization that has made their people uh, better people in the game and, and raise the profile of the superintendent, raise the standards of maintenance. And the PGA of America is just, just not that group. They haven't, they really haven't raised the standards of anything in any way in the game. It's, uh, uh, but they have a lot of money in the bank, so they, they have that going for them. <laughs> yes, that's nice. The danger, of course, of not being a, a particularly fast-moving organisation in a world that moves ever faster, Jeff, eventually you could get left behind, couldn't you? And that's the, uh, that is the well, danger. Well, and, and, they, and they're, I'll tell you what, they're going to really tough situation here because not only is Rio uh, making a mess of, of kind of the, the golf calendar in 2016, but Wimbledon going back a week is, mm. is going to shift the Open Championship possibly. And all of a sudden, we're going to have a situation where the PGA may be too close to the Open. Uh, there, there are a lot of scenarios here, that, and none of them 
really benefit the PGA and, and make make you really say, why are we having this in August? It's the worst time of year for, for golf courses in the United States. Uh, it's it's too close to the British Open. Excuse me, John. Sorry, the Open Championship. <laughs> I slipped, and um, it just it's um, it, it's time to to step back and and the uh, the other five fam- or the other four families of the five families to sit there and and really question where the PGA of America wants this championship to go. Mm. Yes, it's uh, interesting because, of course, it's getting squeezed by the FedEx Cup as well, isn't it? Their own Ryder Cup. Um, right. That, that whole back end of the year is getting extremely busy. And if you're a player, the $10 million pot of the FedEx Cup may be more appealing at some point than the lure of the major being the US PGA Championship. If you've got to dump an event, it may well be that the PGA ends up being it. That is just speculation, but they're the sorts of dangers. Just lastly, Jeff, and I noticed you wrote a piece about this, the ratings for this particular PGA were way down. Now, of course, they're up against the Olympics, which doesn't help. But more broadly, um, if you're in television and you're worried, the demise of Tiger Woods hasn't been good for TV audiences. Can Rory help to lift them back up? Not based on this, but generally, what's your thoughts on that? Where's TV and golf going to go? Well, there is the Tiger bump here, but I, I uh, he was in contention enough that, that I think the only way you explain that, that rating decline this year was uh, the Olympics. Yeah. I just don't think there's any other way to explain it uh, because he was there enough, got, and, and Lord knows they showed him enough on CBS, <laughs> even when he was yes. well out of the tournament. I think we saw David Lynn twice, who finished second. Um, so... They, they did their best, but uh, they, they put on a horrible uh, a telecast, the PGA of America. They, they, they uh, litter it with, with ads and commercial breaks and let CBS do whatever they want, which is uh, we see why the, the Masters treats CBS uh, uh, the way they do. If you, if you let a network kind of uh, uh, run wild, they'll, they'll make it unwatchable. And so it's become known that it's really not an enjoyable viewing experience, whereas the players and the Masters are amazing viewing experiences there almost aren't enough breaks um and it's <laughs> to go to the get up and go to the bathroom and then this one you just it's it's absurd and so i think you throw in the fact that the uh olympic men's basketball was up against it and uh, you know it's this last weekend in a lot of places before school starts and uh the, the watching golf was just not on many people's uh, priority list Okay, so are we giving? I think all up, we're probably going to give the PGA a thumbs down, are we? Apart from the winner, what did Dan Jenkins say, Clates, that uh, Kiowa didn't deserve Rory, but we did? I think that was yeah, his, his yeah. line on the take on it, wasn't it? That probably sums it up nicely. Well, that was the last major of the year, and uh, that uh, so that's wrapped that up. But look, I wanted to go all the way back to the first one. We'll go through these in order. I want to try and rank rank the majors and which was the the most enjoyable from various angles uh, for the rest of the program. Let's go all the way back to Augusta National. I know all three of you were there for the Masters, Clates. It was hyped at the time as a thrilling finish. Bubba, of course, hit that amazing shot, the hook shot out of the trees to win the playoff. Does the hype survive the test of time? Five months down the track, does it still seem as exciting as it did at the time? If the answer to that is yes, which I'm guessing it will, given we had a thriller last year as well, is Billy Payne on the right track to undo the damage of the hooty era at Augusta National? Well, it seems like it. They had a, some dull ones. The Emmerman one was pretty dull and a couple of others. But, yeah, the, the golf was terrific at Augusta this year. You still, it's very easy to be critical of the seventh hole there and the trees in the right of the 11th and 17. And But the golf was terrific. Obviously, there was a brilliant shot. Louis Oosthuizen's a, you know, a beautiful player to watch. I, you know, the contrast in style between the slasher that is Bubba Watson and, and the beautiful technician that Louis is was interesting. And 
uh, you know, it, it's a great event. I, you know, it's a bit like Groundhog Day. The Masters, they're all the same except the shots are different, but the, the week never changes, and the course doesn't seem to change that much. But it was a great tournament. It's always been a great tournament, uh, and certainly it seems like it's got back to being more exciting at the end. I mean, you, you kind of wonder if it was too easy to make four birdies last year to win, but. That's only because we're Australians, I suppose. <laughs> the South exactly. Africans keep dusting us up. That's exactly right. And uh, had it been Adam Scott making four birds at the end, Clades, we were saying that the course is back to its brilliant best. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. no doubt. Huggy, is uh, is Billy Payne undoing the damage of the Hootie year? And is there anything else? Does the Masters need to do anything to maintain its place? It's, it's one of the more revered majors. I think it's probably most people around the world put it at least second behind either the US or the Open Championship on their list of favourite majors, if not first. Does it need to do anything to maintain that reverence or is it doing the good job at the, at the moment? Well, yeah, I mean, if you if you take the view that the you know the Masters is forever going to be a, a major, and I'm sure that's the case, despite my misgivings on that front. But the, I, I share um, Mike's um, <clears throat> view on Billy Payne. I think uh, he's definitely on the right track, and I and I give I actually give him more credit than he's actually <clears throat> getting because I think if it was up to him, I think that the all the stuff that Mike mentioned, you know, the seventh hole and the the 17th and the 11th and all the rest of it. I think he'd put those things back the way they should be tomorrow. If he was, if he said to him, do whatever you want, <clears throat> but they have this, you know, twisted view that they have to show respect in inverted commas to the previous incumbent, the, the marvelous Hootie who screwed the golf course up so royally. And if, I think if, uh, if they could get past that, the Masters next year would be back to the way it, it absolutely should be, and it, and it, and as Mike says again, I mean it's it's terrific, even on a, on with three or four of the holes completely screwed up. So you imagine what it'd be like if we had eighteen holes exactly the way the golf course should be, and they, and they do a great job in setting the course up on the last day. I mean you can, these people know what they're doing. I mean they they look at all the numbers, they look at all the pin positions. They I mean they they study everything to the nth degree. And they set the golf course up in a way that is going to produce a fantastic finish on the Sunday. Mm. And if we just leave them alone, as I say, they'll they'll be fine. Mm. I just wish they could get past this Hootie Johnson fixation and just <laughs> fix his fix the things that he messed up. Do it all in all in one year, Huggy. Get, go straight straight back to the way we used to be in the uh, in the mid nineties. Shaq, uh, you were there this year. You said it's probably one of the best run sporting events. You were you were very. Uh, very, had a lot of praise for Augusta National and how they run the event. The facts machine aside and the debacle with that and Luke Donald's scorecard, which is still probably the most amazing story out of golf to me this year, that Augusta National are using fax machines to send scorecards around the place. Is the Masters still holding its place? And does that excitement from the finish this year, does it, does it hold up for you five months later? <coughs> Shaq. Oh, we might have lost him. In fact, I might have lost Clates as well. Huggy, are you with me? No, I'm here. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm here. Oh, you are there. Sorry, the thing came unplugged. Oh. You can edit. <laughs> you've been, you've sorry, been you'll unplugged. have to edit. Um, to answer your question, um, I think that having thought about it a little bit, the, the tournament this year was fantastic. The one thing that really bothers me stepping away from, from it is the playoff and the sudden death playoff. And... Even though the two players in the playoff were, were clearly the, the two best players that week, I just feel like sudden death for a tournament of that caliber is just um, it's unsatisfying in a way. And, and even though Bubba hit an amazing shot, 
Um, it just it, it it one of these years it's gonna it's it's somehow it's gonna backfire and 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 I'm not sure how or maybe it's just not gonna finish and they're gonna have to come back the next morning and the idea of you know walking out at 8 a.m. in the morning and uh, in sudden death to determine the masters is just uh, is is really not a, a pleasant thought and so that's the only thing otherwise it was it was by far the most exciting major this year what, what do you uh, what do you prefer shaq if not for me. Su- if not sudden death what do you three or four holes is that your preference is it uh, yeah absolutely <laughs> I, oh. I i think that's a, a wonderful system that uh the pga and the open championship both have uh three or four holes i think is just uh, you you know there you know how many holes you're playing you're know knowing mm-hmm. which holes you're playing you can you can kind of chart out a little bit of a, a plan as to how to attack them if you're thinking clearly at the moment, and everybody knows it's likely going to finish at those three and it's going to take a certain amount of time. The problem is for whatever reason Augusta's obsessed with teeing off when they do as late as they do, finishing in that late light, which is beautiful, but um, really is that ultimately uh, that important that you, you can't go an hour earlier um, or 45 minutes earlier to ensure. Um, that you have a proper playoff and 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 you crown the right person. It it's um, it's 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 peculiar to me. Interesting. I'd never given that any thought. Clyde, have you got any preference for the playoff formats of the the tournaments? I've well, never given that a thought, to be honest. I mean, I'm afraid I'm the old school. I I think golf was possibly we we, we won't ever know, but it was possibly robbed of one of its great days in 1987 when uh, Seve and Norman. Or in the playoff, I think that would have been an amazing 18-hole playoff to watch. I'm still an 18-hole playoff guy. I know everyone hates it, but for something that important, come back the next day and play for it. And you know, the Rocco Mediate Tiger Woods playoff was memorable, but the, you know, the, there've been some bad ones too. The, the Zeller Norman one in '84, but I think that if if you could get the Norman and Seve thing done in 18 holes, that could have been one of the great days in golf, and it's just lost and. In the end, the tournament gets decided by a fluke shot, really. Mm. And, and I would rather not see that. But the open know. playoff seems to work pretty well. The four-hole deal works well. The PGA worked well with Keimer and Watson when they played. Mm. But if it was up to me, I'd do the eight-in-hole thing. But mm. I know that everyone hates that. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can't you can't count me among those who would think that's a good idea, Clayton. Although you're right, the Mediate and Woods one was fabulous, wasn't it? But I can't remember any others that have been uh, quite so interesting as that one. And that's probably partly to do with Woods. Speaking of the US Open, and uh, hopefully you can still hear me, Huggy. I know this is one of your pet things. We we watched it at Olympic. Most of the talk in the aftermath of the US Open this year, Huggy, wasn't about the event itself. It was about the long putter. Webb Simpson, of course, won the event. Second player to win a major using a long putter. It was only a month or so later that Ernie Els became the third using a long putter. But lots and lots of talk after the US Open about the long putter issue. It seemed to me, I mean, in some ways, does that do a disservice to the Webb Simpson and the, the tournament itself, that that's where all the talk was? It wasn't so much about the tournament itself or his play, was it? It was really about this issue of the long putter. Well, well, somebody more cynical than I, and believe me, there aren't many of those, um, <laughs> would almost think that this long putter stuff is just to distract from the real problems of the game, which Mike touched on earlier, and God knows we've we've gone round and round on the ball and the technology and all the rest of it. But the the to me the the, the one theme that that's run that's run through all four majors this year, and we've had a you know a diverse group of winners. We've got a you know, an eccentric left-hander, a, a, a guy who misses the next major because his wife's pregnant, uh, we had a guy coming back from the dead, basically, in Ernie, and, and then we have the, 
the best player on the planet in Rory. But the the one theme was the the, the things that that are done to the golf courses now in order to keep the scores up. I mean, and the U.S. Open was the was the to me the worst example of that. I know Lytham was pretty bad too, in many ways. But the 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 U.S. Open to, for me, and I know, I know Jeff disagrees with me slightly on this, is that I thought it was a step back into the the dark ages of the U.S. Open. It, it wasn't quite as bad as it used to be, but it it was definitely a step back from the progress that we'd been making over the last few years. And Lytham again, I disagree with Jeff slightly on on Lytham. I think that. We in the midst of the Adam Scott um, choking, there's a good word for you, choking. Um, <laughs> we'll come on the to last that. nine holes. Yeah. Everybody seems to be forgetting that Ernie Els played a magnificent nine holes in, of 32, and he hit his driver on nearly every hole. That was what separated him from mm. everybody else over the last nine holes. Was the fact that he hit his driver was brave enough and good enough to do it. So it was possible to do it, but you had to play really well, play as well as Ernie did. Yeah, indeed. I think Nick Faldo can probably say the same thing about the 96 Masters. Huggy, everybody remembers Norman losing it. Very few remember Faldo winning it in that way. Shaq, what was your take on the US Open? There was lots of talk afterwards about the long part. What about the tournament itself, though? And then I'll get your thoughts about whether it's fair that Webb Simpson's major goes down as uh, as a controversial equipment issue as opposed to a win in a major. Well, yeah, I'm not sure where Huggy and I disagree. I I, <clears throat> I believe, uh, like he does, the US Open was it was a definitely a huge step back for uh, the USGA and Mike Davis and it was not not a good setup they've made the same mistakes every time they visited Olympic Club with the setup they never uh, are prepared for how firm and fast it gets and uh, it happened again this year and and so it, it just and, and I used the word satisfying on my blog post today about Rory's win and, and I just was it, it's nothing against Webb Simpson or Jim Furyk or Graham McDowell, but it wasn't a satisfying conclusion. You just felt like if the tournament had gone another hour or a half hour less, it would have been two or three different winners. And it, it just happened to be somebody at that point uh, uh, won, and you didn't feel as if uh, there was that complete test of, uh, of all the clubs in the bag, the dreaded cliche, but it is, it is a cliche for a good reason. It's, it's, uh, it's a good thing when they have to hit a lot of different clubs, including the drivers. So, um, it, it was not a, a not a satisfying major in that sense. Everything else about it, I thought, was was excellent. Uh, the conditioning of the place was amazing. Uh, I, th- I I love Olympic Club as a v- U.S. Open venue. It's not a great piece of architecture, but it, the mystique and everything is is uh, fantastic. Um, and then uh, you know, Lytham, I Huggy said we we disagree. I mean, I I I didn't think the setup was great, but part of that was just the weather this year and and. Uh, um, it took a, a lot of um, uh, plotting and, and kind of careful approaching of the golf course. But like he said, Ernie, Ernie kind of um, shook the reins and, and, and floored it and, on that last nine and hit a couple of key drives and made some birdies. And I was with Tiger the whole way. And you just, he, he, his strategy was brilliant all week, uh, except that at some point he had to kind of throw in the towel and 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 shake those reins and make a make a run and bomb a drive here or there and give himself a little wedge in and he refused to do it and and, and the more i think about it and the, after that weird interview after the pga it's 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 i'm i'm feeling like there's just sort of a weird stubbornness uh there that 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 continues to to get in the way and and his thinking is better it's getting clearer i think his ball striking is outstanding 
He's wretched from about 100 yards in for some reason. I don't know what's happened there. But he has this mental thing where he he got caught up in his strategy at Lidham and he didn't want to budge from it. And, uh, and ultimately, the course did its job kind of exposing that. I suppose he's kind of used to being right over the years, hasn't he? Yeah, that, that comment you talked about after the PGA, Clates, I don't know whether you saw this, but on Sunday he was interviewed just after he came off the course, Woods, and he said that he'd made the mistake on Saturday of going out to the course and trying to be too happy and enjoy it too much, uh, but that he's, you know, his natural personality is to be intense. It was an intriguing comment, I thought, like Jeff, it was an intriguing insight into his personality. Did you hear that? What, what, what would be your take on that? I mean, most coaches and players will tell you, you know, the best thing you do is try to relax and enjoy the tournament golf at that stage. And he's saying the complete opposite. Did you have any thoughts on on uh, on Woods there and what he said after the, the PGA? I didn't see it, but, you know, there's a guy who, I mean, obviously people play with much different levels of intensity. Peter Thompson, who was one of my heroes, played, you know, with such nonchalance and coolness and equanimity and he made golf look like it was a Saturday afternoon four ball at the club and Hogan, I suppose, was the opposite and Tiger's you know, in the camp of grinding and you know, not ever making light of the situation on the golf course and he always... And it's worked incredibly well for him. So, you know, I, it's hard to believe that the way he plays, you couldn't have fun playing golf. I mean, if I could play golf like that, it'd be <laughs> wild. It'd be, I mean, how much fun must he have playing golf? Well, but yeah. still, the question with Tiger is, he, you know, he can't hit the driver. It seems like I don't know. I mean, Jeffy's been playing more than me this year, but you know, I'm sure Hogan and Snead would, and, and Nicholas have got you know the guys, the, the great players who could drive the ball would shake their heads in wonderment at his inability to drive the ball down the fairway. Is and it was part, right. I mean, that, Rory will beat him now forever if he because he stands there and smashes it straight down the fairway in every hole. Is that partly equipment though, Clates? Would Woods be better off with the Ballada and the Persimmon? I'm sure everyone would be better off with bladder and persimmon. I mean, the thing for the average player is that with the with the new equipment, especially for decent, strong kind of you know handicaps under ten, there's this massive high right block shot that you see all the time now. It creates a nightmare for the boundary issues, but you see that massive high right block, not a slice, but inside with an open club face. And we played with hickories the other day. It's almost impossible to hit that shot. Mm. I, mean, I think the average player would be better off playing with a hickory shaft, that score lower, because they would never hit that massive crooked shot. And, you know, you, you know the guys who are strong, all, all of a sudden there's this massive crooked shot. And the, the guys who struggle, it's everywhere. You see it everywhere. We see it from the pros too, don't we? I mean, you see those big, wide right shots that you're talking about far more so than we probably probably used to. Jeff, do you agree with that? You you have watched Tiger a fair bit. You're at three of the four majors this year and you picked the right one to skip by the sound of it. It was a nightmare getting to him from Kiowa Island, but from, from Zimbabwe. He looked at the British Open to be scared of the driver. There, there was just a fear there. He just couldn't bring himself to hit it. Well, it's a weird course in that it's difficult to it's it's not tree-lined. It's not what, what he plays most of the time and it's, it is hard to feel comfortable a lot of the tees that live them are up high or the new back tees are up high on a dune and you feel like you you just barely lose one uh it's going to blow all over the place but what was weird is he 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 could hit a beautiful cut with the driver uh at Lytham. no problem at all absolutely gorgeous but uh when he had to hit a draw which there was a key moment um i wrote about in my story he got to the 11th tee and he just, he had to hit driver. He had to get close to that par five and two and make something happen. And, and he tried to hit his cut and it was a, a 
big left to right win. No way you hit a cut there. It's just point, pointless. And he, of course, he hits it up and it blows off over into the rough and he makes par. And uh, but it was just about over at that point. Although then he kind of salvaged things and and then he had another chance at thirteen and fourteen to hit driver and and like Ernie did on those holes and and make them very short, easy holes. And he, and he didn't do it. He refused. And so. I, again, I, part of me thinks it's it's a fear of, of trying to hit a draw. There's that. Um, but I also think there's just sort of a, a stubbornness there, too, that, that's, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to play my uh, Stinger, uh, grind it out, Hogan-esque uh, style of golf. And and, um, and it's it, it just wouldn't work at a place like Kiowa, and it ultimately didn't work at, at Lytham either. What do you, do you think, Jeff, that because he pulled it off so brilliantly at Hoylake, that he would just do the same thing again. He, you know, it worked there so well. I mean, he was playing Ernie and Garcia from 80 yards behind him most of that week, and he beat them. So do you think that he thought, I can do, I'll, I'll just do the same thing again? He, he had to be his thinking. The problem was that Lytham wasn't oil leg. It wasn't that firm. And so no. he, he, he just left himself with some unbelievable approach distances. And, and I made the case in my story, you know, Ernie hit uh, – uh, 12 more greens that week and drove the ball about 20 yards longer. And at some point, and Clates, you know how this, we all know how this is. If you, yeah, over the course of uh, four days and you're hitting long irons in, whereas somebody like Rory's hitting shorter irons in or somebody like Ernie Els, eventually you're going to be more worn out. You're just playing a, a different golf course than they are. And uh, over 72 holes, I think they have an advantage, uh, whether they they pull off the shots or not. Stress wise, it's just a it's just a an easier four days of golf when you're when you're hitting shorter irons in and not working so hard. Certainly, must be taxing mentally, I would imagine, Clates to stand back in the fairway with four and five irons all the time, watching other guys hitting eight and nine irons because they've uh, they've hit uh, the driver. I, I agree with that, but he pulled it off at Hoylake. I, yeah. mean, I mean, he was. You know, the first but, hole but it was, third, he, he held a four-iron. The ball was rolling there. Yeah, and he held a four-iron at one stage, too, which kind of but, hurt too close. But, but he was still hitting four-irons to their yeah. nine-irons on many yeah. holes, but, and he True. pulled it up, you know. Yeah. That was the old... I, I mean, to me, that was one of the most staggering performances in terms of ball striking, except that he hit one driver for the week. Yeah. Uh, and I think at some point, you've got to be able to hit the driver and you know, with confidence and with competence. Hmm. It doesn't seem like he's able to do that as, as well as he could or as well as the other great players in the, in, in the game have been able to do. Although, and he hit it fantastic at the Bridgestone. Hit, I saw him hit a couple of drives on the coverage there that were yeah. just phenomenal. The one he hit down 18 yeah. on the last day was just tra- truly extraordinary shot. And the one he hit on 18 at, at um, Kiowa, Clates went 367 yards on 18. How would you feel about that? 367 yards, one shot. Used to be a par four, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Right. Just uh, anyway, blame the equipment. I blame the equipment. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we'll come back to talking about that at some point in the future, I'm sure. On the uh, on the open, we've moved on to the open. Huggy, you mentioned the C word before. There's a fair bit of debate down here in Australia about that. Uh, as you said, the performance of Els has been somewhat overlooked because of the the collapse of Adam Scott. I think we had a discussion. Uh, Immediately afterwards, uh, on talk and golf, huggy about sort of the the choke word and 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 whatnot. Fill us back in on your views on that. I mean, I'm a the choke word gets thrown around, and it seems to me to contain malice. Generally, people who use it and and say you know Adam Scott choked. There's a sense of malice about it. What's your take on on the word choke? And then I'm going to come to Clates, who's got some interesting thoughts on it. I know. Yeah. Well, I think you I think you're right. I think most people, you know, without thinking about it, 
see the word choker as, as a as a negative. But I mean, I, I I can't remember who it was who said this, but it was one of the world's best golfers. He said everybody chokes. It's just a case of you know how much you choke and how and how well you handle it. I mean, it's in, it's humanly and physically and mentally impossible not to feel nervous, shaky, whatever, however you want to describe it, in a in a situation where you know it's make or break. You've either got to hit the shot and win, or miss the shot and and lose. So obviously, I mean, we're all human. We all understand you know that that that's the way it is. But so to me, the word choke gets a kind of bad rap. I mean, I think if we, if we actually sit down and thought about it, and I've thought about it a bit more since we last talked, and I, it really shouldn't be seen as the big negative that it, that it sometimes is. And I think people use it in the wrong way maybe as well, which contributes to that. But I, I mean, there's no question that Adam Scott choked. I mean, if Adam Scott is to, one of the nicest people in golf, if he was to come in here now and say, I didn't choke, I mean, I mean I'm... I, begin to take that seriously <laughs> i think everybody does choke i mean if you're under pressure you're going to feel it i mean we're, we're all human and it's just a, that's just a fact of life and it's just a case of how well you can handle it in the, in the situation and and some days you're going to handle it better than others and some days you're not so it's just on a he was it got him on a bad day it's as simple as that right. i don't think there's any great deep meaning to any of this Clyde, hey, Huggy, have, sorry. Can I ask Huggy something? Because I, I was kind of stunned by this, and we never got to talk about it after the Open. Uh, and he, cer- Huggy, certainly saw enough of me during the Open. But um, <laughs> we sat next to each other. But uh, you know, afterwards, I, I you saw media guys getting together to determine, and they were asking you even, you know, uh, wh- wh- where does this rank? Is this as bad as Vandeveld? And I was just stunned by that. I I, I didn't see it as, as being nearly the the collapse or the blow up or the disaster that others did maybe because I was out on the course and I saw how ridiculously hard it was playing Sunday with the wind and, and how the 18th hole was just so narrow, so mm-hmm. easy to bogey. I, I was kind of stunned by, by that characterization that it was one of the all time great chokes in, in a, in a major, it just seemed to me like a bad finish. Well, I think, um, I spoke to Jeff Ogilvie the other day cause I, I write his column for uh, golf world magazine over here. And he, the, the subject was Adam at, at Lytham. And, and obviously Jeff's one of Adam's closest friends, so he's obviously going to be sympathetic right off the bat. But he made the, he made a couple of good points, as he always does. I mean, he, he didn't accept that the, the three wood off the last tee was necessarily the wrong club because, as he said, you know, he wasn't sure that Adam, even with the driver, could carry the last bunker that's no. in play for that tee. And he reckoned that with a three iron, two iron, whatever, the first bunker is uh, is definitely mm. in play with that club. So, I mean, he was, he, he was paying tribute more to the hole than criticising Adam. I mean, he says it's a magnificent, you know, it's, it's, you stand there on that tee, and it, it, history's t- told us there's been any number of guys who've taken fives and sixes to lose opens there. I mean, it, you just have to stand there and you have to execute. It's, it's, that's the question it asks you. Can, can you hit it to the right place off that tee? And, and many guys have failed. And my mind goes back to the other side of the coin. Was when in '69 when Jacqueline won, he hit the most magnificent tee shot. Miles, Henry Longhurst said miles up the middle, and he he executed. And somebody in you know, 1958, I think it was when um, Eric Brown won. Yeah, when Eric Brown took a six at the last. The Scottish guy Eric Brown took six at the last hole at Lytham, but he hit it in the bunker off the tee and took six and lost by one. 
So, I mean, and Nicholas finished 5-5 in 63 to miss the playoff by a shot. Ernie bogeyed two of the last three holes in 96 to lose by two. I mean, as I say, there's been plenty of examples. So I think people got too wrapped up in, in Adam choking, if you like. I mean, this this was a very one of the hardest finishes in golf, and he didn't play it very well, and he made a couple of mistakes. And Jeff Ogilvy's other point was that the timing worked against Adam. He was slightly unlucky in that when he hit the good tee shot off the 17th tee, he gets to his ball, is about to hit, hmm. and the big roar goes up from the 18th green where Ernie hmm. made the putt for three. So he backs off hmm. and, and goes that at that moment that he has to finish 4-4 to win. And that was a whole different situation, suddenly. And that's hmm. why that Jeff's mind provoked the, the poor second shot from Adam at 17. Quite. Close. You got into an interesting sort of Twitter debate uh, with myself and a couple others about this whole choke thing. Do, do you mean any malice by it? You said on the, the the show the week before the, I think it was the week before the, the Open, that, that Ernie's one of the world's great chokers. Well, he kind of fixed you up, didn't he? But uh, but just generally speaking, is there any malice in that when you say that, or are you trying to make the point that Huggy was saying? I think it was Trevino said, if you've never choked, it means you've never been in contention. Yeah, yeah I think it's easier for journalists and people who have never experience what it's like to play golf under pressure. Well, I used to choke trying to make cuts, not trying to win, but, you know, it's a, golf, golf's, a, golf's the hardest game when you're nervous. It's incredibly difficult to control the pace of your putts and control your nerves and control that the driver when it's going at 110 miles an hour. And, you know, it's a, just a really difficult game to play when you're nervous. And, you know, it comes back to Huggy and I, our old, the question of, if Peter Thompson could only have played the last four holes of Greg Norman and Adam Scott, Australian golf history would be a whole lot different. <laughs> yes. But, you know, it, it, I mean, the greatest, you know, I mean, choking is kind of the, the it's a paralyzing thing. And the, there's never been a player more paralyzed by the moment than Doug Sanders. If you watch that 18th hole at St Andrews, that's what, being paralysed by the pressure is, and that's what choking is—is is not not being able to deal with the situation. And you know, Nicholas lost torments, but you know, you never saw him paralysed by the situation he was in. And you know, Adam lost that torment on the 16th hole. I mean, he had a you know a relatively simple wedge, and where Sevy had hit the great shot in '88, you know, he stiffed that nine iron. Adam had you know he pitched it too far and. Anyone who's been nervous, it, it's easy to watch on TV, but he wobbled that first putt down there, you know, a foot further from the hole than was comfortable. And he, you know, you pull it by an inch and it spins out of the hole. And then Ernie makes the birdie, and all of a sudden it's, oh my God, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> so, you know, for me, the interesting question is how he handles it, how he comes back from it, because, you know, he's far too good a player not to win a major, mm-hmm. but, you know, can't. Can he pull it off, and how does he handle it next time? Loads of players are far too good not to win majors, aren't they? Uh, Clates, how did you rate his play at, at Kerr with any? He was right there when play was called on the Saturday uh, of the third round. Uh, it was a fair way back when it was all finished, but he seemed to be making a good fist of it, didn't he? Yeah, he played well. He's a, I, I think I saw yesterday he was, of the 12 or so guys, or whatever the number was, who made the cut in all four majors, he had the lowest total score. So clearly his strategy of playing a little less and focusing on the majors is, if you want to call it paying dividends, it paid dividends in the sense that he had less shots than anyone else in the majors. He just didn't win any of them. Enough to drive you mad, wouldn't it, Clayton, as a player to see that statistic? <laughs> well, it would, but, 
you know, you know he's a he's such a beautiful player that mm. surely somewhere he'll have a week where everything goes right for him. Yes, you would think so. You would definitely think so. All right, let's try and rank these uh, one to four. I don't know if that's even possible, but Shaq, I'll start with you. We did this exercise once a couple of years ago, and it was it was kind of interesting. We only went with thumbs up or thumbs down for each of the majors back then, but can we number these one to four, <coughs> most favourite to least favourite, the four majors this year? Well, favourite, uh, obviously the Masters is number one just because it was the most thrilling and, and uh, I, I felt to, to, to watch as a fan. Um, I'd put the Open second, uh, uh, and the PGA third, and the U.S. Open fourth, if I had to, and, and that's just again on on sort of a combination, I guess, of of enjoyment factor to watch, and and then that word satisfaction of of feeling like you watch the best player uh, uh, win, and again, that's not a knock on Webb Simpson in the U.S. Open, it, but it just felt like uh, that that was the least satisfying uh, of all to me, and. Um, and, and unfortunately next year, Marion's going to be, uh, probably the same kind of thing. Well, judging by the pictures that Clayton showed us a few, a few weeks ago, when we spoke to him, it's just, there's a hideous, hideous disfigurement of, of, of a Mona Lisa going there. Huggy, can you rate these one to four? Um, well, I'm going with uh, the the PGA at number one just because I think it's going to be looked back on as the most historically significant simply because, as we touched on earlier, to me that this is confirmation that uh, the best player in the world is not Tiger Woods and it's it's Rory McIlroy. Uh, number two would be the Masters simply because, as Jeff touched on, it's uh, it's just still brilliant fun to watch and and I love watching Louis Eustace night. He's he's my he's my number one favorite swing in golf, uh, number two being Francesco Molinari, but, uh, plus, and you've got Bubba's shot, so that's number two. The Open would be number three, uh, and number four, the US Open, simply because, as I say, it was a step backwards for me yep. in yep. so many ways, and, and not to be too hard on the winner, but uh, I don't think history's going to anoint uh, Webb Simpson as a great player when he's finished. He'll be a, he'll be a pretty good player, no more than that. U.S. Open tends to throw those up, doesn't it? It's an interesting, uh, interesting test of the game. Clay, so you one, uh, you probably don't like to rank them. Can I ask you? Are you going to tell me no? You're not interested. One to four. I oh, know. I think the U.S. Open was clearly fourth because there wasn't a really seemed to me, a, you know, a great memorable shot or a moment or it just fumbled along to a finish like it, like it often does because the course makes people fumble along to the finish because they're so hard and mm-hmm. smothered in grass, long grass. But it's a toss up for me between the Masters because it was a Thought, you know, it was exciting and watching those two guys on the 72nd tee, Louie and Bubba, hit those those tee shots. Is, they, they were staggering drives up that shoot there. McElroy's play was great. And as Huggy said, I, you know, it's the first time in 15 years that there's clearly a player who's the best player in the world who's not Tiger Woods. And, yeah. and the Open was kind of tinged with sadness for Australians, obviously, because it looked like we were going to win one. But I think, you know, the Ernie's class, he, he didn't even go remotely close to shoving it in Adam's face on the 18th green at the presentation, which I thought was uh, pretty classy. You know, he could have easily have walked around like the triumphant winner and he made sure he didn't do that. And So that was, you know, that's one of the great things about golf, I think, is that you don't stick it in the other guy's face, especially when Adam had been through what he'd been through. So that was a 
That was a nice moment, I thought. I agree. and I, I don't reckon you, you could have gone onto that 18th green there, Clayton's, and got yourself two huge scoops of dignity, and there still would have been plenty left over, wouldn't there? It was. Yeah. They really covered themselves in glory, both of those guys. And look, who could begrudge Ernie another major, long putter or not, and all the rest of the year? You, you can't begrudge him, can you, Clayton? He's such a nice bloke, and I know you're right, it was tinged with sadness for Australia, but I think like everywhere else in the world, all's is popular down here. Uh, and if it couldn't be Scott, I think Ernie would have been the next pick of anybody uh, to win that. Yeah. And I think, I don't know um, whether it was right, but I think that if it was true that he'd been drinking less, I think, you know, I know that, I remember Seve looking at me once, it was a very well-known little Welsh player in the bar, and he looked at me and said, that's no good, you can't be a good player doing that mm-hmm. stuff. And, you know, I think that there's no coincidence that there's a relationship between alcohol and yipping. And, mm. you, know, you know, I think that Ernie... Conspicuously, he made that putt in the last hole that he wouldn't have made a year ago. I don't think it was mm. a great putt, and I think he's still got some great golf left him. You know, he's he's got such a beautiful swing. There's no reason why he couldn't or can't play tremendous golf for another six or seven years. Which no. is, isn't that swing is an adornment to the game and. The more you can see it and watch it, and the longer it lasts, the better it is for all of us. Yep. Not to mention all that uh, experience, Clates, which can't be underrated, can it? You put that swing with all that experience, and boy, you know, <laughs> there's no 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 reason that Ernie Els can't win more. There's no doubt about that, is there? Well, uh, yeah, and I think that conventional wisdom, which is probably right, is that he was, you know, his career was spooked by by Woods. Yes. Woods psyched him out and beat him a lot, and now now if it's you know, if, if the past Tiger is going down is not going to be one of the intimidation he had before, then and he's got a chance to win a couple more. You know, four majors is a tremendous career. But there's kind of that line of Trevino and Faldo at six. And, you know, if you can get to six or seven, you become one of the top ten players of all time. And Ernie's one of the top ten talents of all time. And it would be nice to see him get there, probably. Two more, yeah. They've done it in three different decades, which is pretty impressive, too. Uh, long span between drinks, which I think the point you made, Huggy, when we spoke after the Open. That's very impressive, isn't it? I think it was, what is it, six, 18 years between first and last? 16 years. 18 years. Yeah, yeah that certainly bucks the trend. Of, yeah. It's usually, you know, eight to ten years, that's all you get at yeah. the, the very highest level. And, you know, apart from Nicholas and Player, I think uh, Ernie's the, the longest between uh, first and last. Yep, indeed. Gents, it's been absolutely fabulous and uh, rating all the, the majors. In case anybody's interested, I think I'd go along with, uh, I'd put the US Open fourth and I think uh, Masters probably first. That was very exciting. And then uh, then then the Open for me with Ernie because I just thought that such a great personality. So Rory in second. Fabulous to uh, to talk to you all. Fabulous to talk about the majors. Looking forward to doing it all again shortly. But that wraps it up for this time. Uh, thank you, Jeff Shackelford. Thank you, Rod. John Huggan in uh, Scotland. Thank you very much. And, of course, Clates down in Melbourne. Always great to get your insights. Thanks, Rod. Not at all. And that wraps it up for this episode of State of the Game. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to do it all again. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also.